I think we will uh, start. We're going to talk to now about the respiratory system. And what I intend to do is quickly run through the anatomy and the physiology of the respiratory system. And then I'm going to start talking about some of the common problems. And the reason we are doing this is that many of you would like to run smoking cessation programs and so forth. It's important that you understand uh, the respiratory system if you're going to be talking to people. One other thing that I want you to do is, as we go through this, we will stress to you the complexity, uh, the, the beauty, the, the, the wonderful thing. But I'd like you to also spend a, just a moment now thinking about the embryological development of these structures. Dr. Landless just talked to you about the heart. But the embryological development of the heart is in itself a most wonderful and significant thing because it starts off as a single tube. And then it folds, and then it twists, and then tissues fuse, and chambers form. You know, the embryological development of the heart is in itself maybe a week's learning uh, if, we were, if we were to sit down and do it. But even in the lungs, when we look at the lungs, they are uh, fearfully and wonderfully formed because everything we're talking about, remember, developed from a clump of cells that under their automatic organization led to this development and all the switchings on and switchings off, the complicated things that are going on to lead to this development. We just take it for granted. We say the lungs are there, that's what it is. But we, we sometimes forget the wonder of the embryology that led to that particular uh, state of affairs. So we want to provide you an understanding of how the respiratory system works. We want to affirm or provide an understanding of how it works with other systems of the body so that you understand that you know, having a pair of bellows in our chest would do nothing if it were not for the heart, the blood uh, to transport and the, 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 the tissue interactions that exchange the, ga the gases. And we want to affirm your understanding of the defense system, that's the immune protection of the respiratory tract. Now, the respiratory system are those structures that facilitate the intake of oxygen and the expiration or the exchange of carbon dioxide. And it begins right here. Did you notice how well I did that? That was pretty good, eh? Think of all the coordination. See that it didn't go like this. It went right there, you see. The coordination of the respiratory system is coordinated with all the other systems because the reason that we breathe is that there's a respiratory center in the medulla oblongata, which is the back of our neck here, the lower portion of, which is sending a stimulus through the phrenic nerves to the diaphragm for us to breathe rhythmically and regularly. If our oxygen tensions in the blood change, we may breathe a little faster. That's why when we go for a walk in the morning, I, 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 I'm saying to my wife, I, I, I want to start to, to move a little faster. But I also want to do the walk with her. So she walks, and I run behind her. I don't run very fast, but I'll run behind her like this, and she walks straight ahead. And so I'm able to, do, to, to keep a little faster pace, and yet we can still do it together. And we can talk and we, and we, uh, 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 as, we, as we exercise. But I find that if I go a little faster, my breathing is just a little heavier because I'm producing more carbon dioxide from the metabolism. It has to be excreted. So the carbon dioxide pressure, the partial pressure of the carbon dioxide, and the demand for oxygen, the partial pressure of the oxygen, they are read out by the receptors in the medulla oblongata, and that then influences how I breathe. So we, we have a beautiful and very complex system. It's not just the nose and the air sacs, but even the nose is wonderful. We said about my grandson looking at my nose and saying, you've got a spider up there, Grandpa. The no what do the hairs in your nose do? They filter out larger particles, yes. 
But if we look inside the nose, we put a little nasal speculum in and we look, shine a little light in there, we will see that there are some folds inside the nose. We call them turbinates. And if you put your finger up your nose, you find it's moist in there. What is that moisture doing over the turbinates? Any? The mucus is there, yes. What's it doing? Well, it's, yeah, how many of you as kids used to see those old-fashioned sticky things that you'd hang up there and catch flies on, you know, and the fly would get on and stuck? Well, the moisture on the turbinates, when dust and dirt comes there, it sticks on there like a fly, all right? It's, it's caught. What else does the turbinate do? I don't know if you were as... Exactly, it moisturizes the air. And, and how does it do that? I don't know if you were a kid like me. I, I, I sometimes used to get into fights as a kid, and I'd come home with a bloody nose, all right? And, and my mother would go crazy, you know, why was I fighting and so forth and so forth, because she was uh, uh, trying to be a good Christian mother. She was a good Christian mother, but, you know, she didn't want her son to get a fight and didn't want me to get a bloody nose. My father was a little more pugilistic. He would always say, you have to defend yourself, otherwise you'll be bullied, see? So... Uh, it was, it was this kind of balance between uh, uh, law and grace, you know, that was, that was going on there. And, but why did my nose bleed? Exactly, and they were very rich there. You see, the nose has a rich blood supply to warm the air. So, so the nose is very good, and it ends in the alveolar sacs. Part of the respiratory system is also our pharynx. So we have the nose with the hairs and the turbinates and the moid. As we go to the back, we have the pharynx. The pharynx is that part of the, at the back of the throat, it's the shared chamber between where we swallow our food and where air has to pass through the back of our nose, or it can go through our mouth, but it goes through the back portion called the pharynx. And if we get a sore throat with a streptococcus, we call it a pharyngitis. It's an inflammation in the pharynx. And then from the pharynx, it goes to the larynx. The larynx is the voice box. Everybody put your, put your fingers on the voice box, and all together let's hum, ah. You feel the vibration? In the larynx, ah, there are two membranes, and by stretching those membranes, we can go, Ah, uh, we've relaxed them. Ah, uh, we've tightened them a little bit more. Ah, uh, we've tightened. Ah, uh, we're really tightening those cords. So the larynx has the vocal cords stringing across them. Now, if you look at a male, the male, the larynx grows at puberty, and his voice changes because the larynx grows longer. The Adam's apple becomes more prominent. So when you see that skinny guy with that huge Adam's apple, you think, he must be the bass in the quartet, you see, because he's got these longer chords. So he's going to be able to get the more, the lower vibratory tones, if, if, if he's a singer, because he's got longer chords. And the cords are also extremely sensitive. You know, if you get a little crumb of bread lands on the cords, oh, you cough like crazy. You say, oh, <laughs> went, <coughs> went <coughs> down the wrong way. It's very sensitive. And in order to protect it just above the opening, you see, the, the windpipe, if we're going to speak uh, trachea, the, the airway comes front anterior in front of the esophagus, which is at the back. But here, if there's a little opening then, we've got the main tube of the esophagus going down. Now we've got the, we've got the respiratory tract taking off. And just above it, there is the little trapdoor kind of epiglottis. It's actually not a trapdoor that closes right down because it's got cartilage in it. It's like your ear has cartilage. So this sits up there, but it is it forms a wedge so that when you drink something, it splays around the cartilage and, and the food drops around it, and so it's just slightly rigid, and so it doesn't go into the airway, so the epiglottis. And children who have epiglottitis, 
they may get that epiglottis to swell and become very swollen. And these kids, they, they, they can hardly swallow. And so you'll see a child, he may have a noise I'm going to talk about. He may have stri uh, uh, stridor. He's going, uh, uh, because the airway is narrowed. But in addition, you see that this child is drooling because they can't even swallow the saliva. It hurts so much. So the kid is, uh, 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 and, and the saliva is running. And the doctor, who's wise, will never put a tongue depressor in to try and see because that may cause a coughing spasm or a spasm, and the epiglottis may actually plug the airway. So this is called epiglottitis. Just a little, uh, a little aside for you. The trachea is the central tube that goes down from there. And then after, this, after the trachea, and there's the trachea, Here's the, here's the, here you see this, this little bone is called the cri uh, cricoid, actually. Here's the thyroid bone here, and then the, 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 the vocal cords are inside there. Then we come down to the trachea. Now, the, these drawings of these little cross bands here are to represent cartilaginous support of the trachea, so the trachea doesn't collapse. Put your finger there, and you can feel that the windpipe is firm, all right? it has cartilage in it so that the tube is held open. And if we were going to be doing, let's say somebody has a problem in the larynx or epiglottitis, the breathing is stopped, or somebody's swallowed a chunk or, or uh, inhaled a chunk of meat and you've given the Heimlich maneuver, the Heimlich maneuver is, you know, where you <clears throat> lift, try to push it out, but it hasn't worked, and they're, they're really dying. Uh, and there's a doctor there, he may, he may say, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do, what I'm going to And he may take his penknife, and he may actually make a tracheostomy. He's going to go down, and he's going to make an incision just about here, in between the cartilage, in between the cartilage rings. And he's going to hopefully let the air into the trachea. And then the air will go down through the trachea, and it will split and come into the bronchi. These are the bronchi. You see these? Now, these bronchi, not bronchioles, these bronchi, on the right side, it's a more direct, it's a more direct uh, flow uh, uh, on the right side than it is on the left. It goes, go, the bronchus goes down. And that is why, you know these kids, they throw up peanuts and they catch them in their mouth, all right? You see, kids can catch them in their mouth. Oh, how coordinated. They catch them, just like my dog can catch a piece of popcorn when I throw it to the dog. Catches the well, it's my grandkid's dog, but I'm training it to do that. They catch these things, and if it goes down the wrong passage, and you had to place bets as to which lung it went into, it will go four out of five times into the right lung because it's going down straight, because it's straighter, and the branch is like that, you see? So, so this one goes down, and the other one branches off. So when that's the case, you're going to, as doctors we know, huh, it's probably going to be in that bronchus. Now, the, the other thing is that there are three lobes in this right lung and only two lobes in the left lung. See, these, this is, these are, are branches, you see, the one, two, three lobes, and here there's two lobes in the left lung. The branches, the, the bronchi also have cartilage, cartilaginous rings. So they get smaller and smaller until we come down to the bronchioles, all right? When we come to the bronchioles, we no longer have any cartilage. Now, the bronchioles are very important because when somebody has asthma, we say they have bronchospasm. You can't have spasm in the bronchi because the cartilage is holding it up. You don't get spasm in the trachea because the cartilage holds it up. But it's in the bronchioles where the cartilage has disappeared that the smooth muscle of the bronchiole can constrict. And so in asthma, when they have bronchospasm, or chronic obstructive lung disease, those areas where the constriction can take place, that's where we get constriction of the airways. And that way, we, we have bronchi, branching like the tree, into the bronchioli, no cartilage, and they end in the air sacs, which are called the alveoli. So there we have a picture of the respiratory system. Alveoli are very, very important. 
just to show you how wonderfully we are made. When the baby is born, the lungs have no air in them whatsoever. Everything's been formed, little air sacs and everything, but they're all filled with fluid. Okay. Now, how many of you have tried to blow up those little balloons? You know those long little strip balloons that make sausage balloons and you fold them into them? How many of you tried to blow those up? Is it easy? It's very difficult because they have a very narrow circumference and you're, you know, to get them to start to blow up. The bigger they blow up, the easier it is. Now, the first breath requires tremendous pressures to open those air sacs. Now, God looked after us very well. How many of you blew bubbles when you were a kid and had a pipe, a little pipe and blew bubbles? Let me see how observant you were. When you blow the bubble on the end of the pipe, you blow the bubble, the bubble gets bigger and bigger, and it starts to wobble. Have you seen it wobble on the top of the pipe, all right? Okay, now what you do is you take the pipe out of your mouth and you let the air out of the bubble. The bubble goes, gets smaller and gets smaller and gets smaller, 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 and the smaller it gets, the faster it seems to collapse. And when it reaches just a little tiny bubble, it goes, and it just goes pop. What's happening? The surface tension the surface tension inside the bubble increases the smaller the diameter of the bubble becomes. Now, when we make soap suds to make the bubble, we actually add to the water something that decreases the surface tension. That's why we form the bubbles. If you just put water in your pipe and blow it, you won't form bubbles because you need something that lowers the surface tension in order for the bubble to form. The alveolar sac is a small, diameter, tiny, almost microscopic sac. And in order for that sac to be able to be inflated with such a tiny diameter, there has to be added a very special lubricatory fluid. And the lubricatory fluid that's added is called surfactant. Surfactant is made from fatty acids and lecithin. The one that we have as adults is, is called, the name, just to give you the name, is called dipalmatoyl lecithin. When a baby is about 26 weeks of development inside its mother, there is a, an oleic, oleic lecithin, but it changes over at about 28 weeks to become the palmatoyl type. If a baby is born prematurely, it has often what we call respiratory distress syndrome. Its breathing is hard. And when it's breathing, you see intercostal indrawing, so the lungs are stiff, so you see the in between the ribs, it has substernal indrawing. It's grunting. And when it's, it's, it's breathing difficult, it has respiratory distress syndrome. The problem is that it hasn't been mature enough to make enough surfactant. Now, since doctors have known that when we get a very premature baby born, the first thing we do as we deliver the baby is we take a little laryngoscope and we instill a dollop of dipalmatoyl lecithin, which is what the baby should have been making. So the baby <coughs> cries and the dipalmatoyl lecithin that we've added is <coughs> sucked into the alveolar sacs and it's like a lubricant. It makes the breathing so much smoother. I tell you this because I want you to always be in wonder of every system that I talk about, about the wonderful God that we have and how everything is so beautifully made and to never doubt in your minds that this could ever happen by chance. These things don't happen by chance. These are complicated, complex things. And it doesn't matter if the evolutionist who doesn't believe in God therefore has to find a way that it happened without God. If he devises all kinds of plans and gives millions and millions of years, it still over millions and millions of years becomes a very difficult thing. So now we have the air coming in to the alveolar sacs, and we have the air being blown out, and we have this smooth lubricant 
activity that allows it to go very nice and easily and reduces the we tell it compliance of the lung. But that would do no good at all, because these alveoli, we can blow air in and out of them all the time. It requires for the exchange to work for the body that there should be around each one of these sacs a network of blood vessels. The blood vessels have to bring venous blood, that is blood that has picked up the carbon dioxide, venous blood to the lungs. And then, as we're breathing air, the oxygen concentration and the pressure of the oxygen in the air we breathe is higher than that in a tissue that has used the oxygen. It now takes on the oxygen and it offloads the carbon dioxide. And hemoglobin is so devised and so created that it has this capacity to pick up oxygen in a high oxygen pressure and to offload the oxygen where the oxygen pressure is low, to pick up carbon dioxide when the pressure is higher, and to offload the carbon dioxide when the pressure is lower. So it's a two-way system. It's a, a substance that is capable of transporting oxygen to the tissues and picking up carbon dioxide and taking it back. If you owned a shipping line and you were shipping iron ore from the Great Lakes out into some place, and now you have to send the ship back, you don't want to send it back empty. So you, in the same way, the blood is carrying oxygen from the lungs to the tissues and carbon dioxide from the tissues back to the lungs, made possible because this one cell thick air sac, one cell thick air sac, is surrounded with a network of vessels which are also capillaries, so they are also only one cell thick, and they are able to do what I've just described for you, all of this exchange. And the wonder of it is not to just look at it and say, this is what they do, but think of the wonder of how this all came into being and came about by the embryological process of pulmonary uh, development. So the respiratory system, as I've talked about these things, it allows, because it's only one cell thick, it allows the diffusion of gases across the membrane very fast. So I'm talking about a, a, a couple of things, and I'm going to go back on some of these and, and explain further what I'm talking about. The lungs are in the chest. They're in your chest. If you are in a motor vehicle accident and the steering wheel of the car crushes your chest and it breaks your ribs in the form of a, of a, of a circle of the steering wheel, and they take you out of the chair, they maybe bring the jaws of life and they take you out, you have now what we call a flail chest. You breathe in, and because the ribs are all broken, that portion of the chest goes in, all right? So when you breathe out, it, it flaps, so it's a flail chest. It's going in and out, and that means you don't have the capacity to draw the, the air in and let it collapse out. So, well, it collapses out all right because the lungs are elastic and want to collapse. But you don't have the ability to, to draw it in. So that being the case, you could be in big trouble. I had a friend who was in a motor vehicle accident, and he got a flail chest. He almost died, and they had to fix his ribs. They wire his ribs so that the chest doesn't collapse like that so that he could breathe. Now, breathing in and out requires both the rib cage to provide a negative, a negative chamber because the diaphragms, we have two big muscles that are domes of muscle at the base of our rib. When they flatten, they pull in the air because the ribs stay rigid, hold the, hold the bucket, as it were, open, and you pull down, so now you, it's like a plunger pulling through the syringe, pulls the air in. When you relax and breathe, the elasticity of the lungs, the natural elasticity of the lung, allows it to collapse. Now, there are certain conditions that these, these mechanisms are hurt, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. I've talked about hemoglobin. So basically, what have I told you? I've told you there is ventilation. In and out, we ventilate the lungs.
I have told you that there is perfusion, that the blood is flowing through the lungs. And I've also told you that there is diffusion. Across the interface, there is diffusion. These three things are very important. They are the essence of, they are the essence of respiration. There's never a complete change. There's always some gas in the lung. And rapid breathing may lower the carbon dioxide, but rapid breathing does not raise the oxygen level. So, you know, I sometimes smile. In fact, I always smile when we say, now we've gone for a walk and we've got some oxygen in our lungs. The body mechanisms are such that we actually maintain our oxygen levels if we're normal at exactly the same and right level all the time. So this business about teaching people to breathe is presumption of the highest magnitude because God has taught us how to breathe by implanting into us mechanisms of breathing that, to tell you the truth, we cannot improve upon them. All right. What we do do when we tell people to take a big breath, maybe we help them to relax, and we also ventilate areas of the lung that perhaps have not been used because we haven't been active enough. But the best way to learn to breathe is not to take three or deep, four deep breaths every now and again. It's to actually get out and exercise and make those portions of the lungs that we're not using all the time, make them be utilized. That's the best thing you can do to learn how to breathe. Exercise to the point that you have to breathe a little heavier. There you are teaching yourself how to use your lungs. Now, rapid breathing, if you breathe quickly at rest, you do not raise the oxygen level in your blood because once the hemoglobin is 100% saturated, it's 100% saturated. Once the uh, liquid portion of the blood is in equilibrium with the partial pressure of the oxygen in the area, it's not going to rise above that unless you put you in a pressure tank and raise the pressure of the oxygen. That's the only way you're going to raise the actual oxygen. Or breathe oxygen and displace some of the nitrogen, and now you have twice as much oxygen being delivered. But in normal air, breathing will not raise the oxygen level. But breathing rapidly can lower the carbon dioxide level. And that's why you will see these kids, you know, they breathe and then they hold their breath, put their head, and they faint. Because you change the pH of the blood by doing that. You make it alkaline, and there's a shift of the calcium. And, and, and so you get, people can have tetany, they get muscle spasm. And hyperventilation in response to anxiety or in response to being stressed or hysterical manifestations that is because the CO2 is being blown down. And that's why you take a paper bag and you say to that person who's stressed out and, oh, I'm so worried. You, you put a paper bag over there so that they rebreathe some of the carbon dioxide and raise the carbon dioxide levels. And then the tinglings go out of their fingers and they start to feel a little bit better. And, you know, feeling better, they can relax a little more and not breathe quite so rapidly. If we breathe very slowly, the carbon dioxide level will rise. And because red blood cells bind oxygen so quickly and well, I've told you all that. All right? So there we are. Okay? Diffusion. If the blood can't flow through the lungs, then you could be in trouble. What can stop the blood flowing through the lungs? Maybe you had a blood clot in your leg and it went through the heart and it plugs the vessels. A pulmonary embolus is a classic example of, of, stopping, of stopping perfusion. Diffusion, on the other hand, which is the transfer across the membrane, diffusion will be whether there is fibrosis in the lung that is not letting it go. Or sometimes you have pneumonia and there's inflammation between in the alveoli sacs and the inflammation, all those cells, that fluid that I talked about when we talked about inflammation, gets into the lung. That's going to help diffusion. And the perfusion, if the heart stops, you're not perfusing your lungs. That's why when somebody has a cardiac arrest, they lie there, they are dying, and every now and again you see them go, <gasps> these are the agonal gasps. Somebody who dies goes, <gasps> when my father died, he was at home, we were looking after him, he died, 
his heart stopped and I said, oh, we've lost him. Dad's gone. And then he went. <coughs> but they were agonal breaths. <coughs> I didn't get on his chest and start pounding his chest. He had cancer. He had, He'd said, if the Lord is gracious, he'll let me go quickly. You know, it, it had been a misery the last three months. He'd been in pain and anxiety. Th there comes a point in time when we must let people die in dignity and re be respectful of them. And, and, and we need to encourage people to write living wills that releases the family from the anx anxiety and the agony of, of saying, well, people, we must try everything we can. The medulla oblongata, as I told you, controls the breathing. The compliance of the lungs has to do with the elasticity of the lungs. Now, when we look at the lungs, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on compliance, we talk about volumes. There are actually, what we, when we talk of volumes, there are actually four volumes. You're sitting there at rest, and you're breathing like this, in and out, and in and out. That's the tidal volume, that amount that you blow in and out. That volume is about, is about 500 cc's, 500 mils, half a liter of air. You breathe in and out, at rest, sitting as you are here. Now, if I ask you to breathe in and out, and at the peak of breathing in, so now, I'm going, now it's artificial now, so we, but we'll do it. We start to breathe out, and we breathe in. No, 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 you're breathing maximum. Just breathing normally, we breathe in. But as we come, as we come to this point here, we've breathed in the normal amount. Now, breathe in as much as you can to fill the lung. And then we breathe it out, just to normal. This portion here is the inspiratory reserve volume. So we have the tidal volume that goes up and down. And we have an inspiratory reserve volume that we can breathe in up to, and we come back to the to to to, to the to the you know the baseline there. Now I'm going to ask you: you breathe out, you breathe in and out, just normally in and out and in. And as you come to the end of the out, I want you to blow out as much as you can. So we breathe in, we breathe out, and then we go. We blow out every bit of air. That is the expiratory reserve volume. And now we come back and we start breathing again. So we have different volumes. We have the tidal volume. We have the inspiratory reserve volume. And we have the expiratory reserve volume. But when you breathe out, you never empty all the air out of your lungs. You never empty all the air out. And so there is always a residual. See, there's a residual volume there that is there. This is how doctors will measure the pulmonary functions of individuals to see and to check. For example, there's one little test that you may use in your health fairs. It's called the forced expiratory volume one second. You give them a little spirometer, you say, how much air can you blow out in one second? So you give this thing, you put it in their mouth, they breathe in, take a big breath, and in one second, see? You don't allow them to go, no, it has to be one second, because that measures how fast they can blow the air out through the lungs, and that's a measure of how restrictive the, the, the bronchi are. And somebody who has chronic obstructive lung disease or a smoker, you do that little test, you say to them, just use the spirometer and breathe out. They go, and it's not very much. Somebody who's got nice clear airways and flexible lungs and so forth, they, you look at the measure and you say, well, this one is normal and you've got the charts as what's normal. And this one is problem. There's a problem here. This guy is having difficulty blowing out. Why does asthma and why does asthma why does asthma and chronic obstructive lung disease give more of a problem with breathing out than breathing in? Well, if you let's let's draw this little circle. All right? 
Now, when you breathe in, the pressure on this bronchus is going that way and that way because we've got the diaphragm pulling down and we are breathing in. And so it's opened a little bit and the flow of air is easier through this tube that is breathing in than the same tube when we breathe out because now as we breathe out, it's collapsing down. And so we find that the that the diameter of the tube in expiration will be a little less than it will be in inspiration. You got that? It's easy to see. So the asthmatic who is suffering with a swelling in the, in the, an allergic, maybe an allergic reaction, swelling, thickened mucus in here, and possibly some spasm if there is muscle around that bronchus that's in spasm, so this, this muscle in there is, is also constricting it down. This is constricted down, making the breathing more difficult. When the person breathes out, we hear a wheeze. I'm doing it in my throat, but it's actually in their chest when they do it. And you hear it. And a prolongation of expiration is the hallmark of chronic obstructive lung disease that you might see in your people who are smokers or in the person who has asthma. It is not, as some of the TV adverts say, stridor. Now, asthma does not cause... <coughs> That's stridor. There's something blocking the airway on inspiration on stridor. So the kid who's been tossing peanuts and gets one in his thing, he goes, ah, I swallowed a ah, peanut, ah, I've got a... Ah. You know he's got an airway obstruction. The guy who's been eating um, beef steak or mutton chops or stew or something, and he's got a chunk of it goes down there, if you can hear him going, ah, I've got it down there, you're lucky. It's when the guy is... and there's no noise, boy, that guy's in big trouble, see? And that's where you're going to do the Heimlich maneuver. And Dr. Landless is going to show you the Heimlich maneuver, but he's not going to do it. I'm going to protect myself a little bit, otherwise I won't be able to talk to you. But show them how you do the, the Heimlich maneuver. He puts his hand, now no notice, notice, you see he's got his, the base of his thumbs here, he's got the, the thumbs, and he's put it beneath my sternum here, see? And then he goes, oh! See? Now, <clears throat> that, oh! Is the air coming out of my lungs that <laughs> blows the morsel of meat, we hope, <laughs> out of there. And you know, that's a good time. You'll be able to make him into a vegetarian right then. But it's not the best time to talk to him about it because his heart is beating fast, he's feeling so anxious, you, you just say to him, I'm so glad that, we, that, that, that we're able to get that out of there. The good Lord loves you. He's got something in his mind for you. You make a spiritual lesson and tell you when he's settled down and he's so thankful to you that you saved his life, then, then you can say, you know, Maybe if you didn't eat those chunks of meat, you wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. Yeah. They pound them on the back. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a pounding on the back uh, sometimes works. But... But the pounding on the back is not as efficient as the Heimlich maneuver. So we don't, we, don't, we don't recommend the number two method. We recommend the number one method. Now, actually, I had a son who was just like his father. He's, he talked, talked, talked. And when he wasn't talking, he was singing. And, and, and even as a little boy, we wrote to my mother and we said, man, he never shuts up. He never shuts up. We came home on furlough from missions. And after a couple of days, she said, now I know what you mean, you see. 
this kid would go, Mama, look at this. Oh, look at this. Oh, I want to tell you a story. I just saw a bee out there. The bee was just wonderful. And then he was going, One day he stopped. He was under the table. And my wife was writing letters back home. And she said, oh my goodness. And she looked under there, and he was playing with marbles. And she had the presence of mind. She said, oh. He'd got a marble, and the marble had gone. And he was so small, she just held him up by his heels. And sure, she pounded him across the back. Because he was just a little two-year-old. And the marble fell out. And he went, ah. And then he carried on, for another you know, 30 years, yes, okay. So, but we tell you these things just because you may save somebody's life. Now, just a few minutes, I want to just go through, I've talked about some of these things. I want to go now to, to a, a different thing. I, there's, there's a little picture, this is a real picture of cilia. See the little cilia? This is the mucous membrane. See these cells here? These cells here are called goblet cells. They are cells that make the mucus that you see. Here is the cellular lining that is lining the, the, the sorry, these are microscopic. This, this is a cell, you can't even see this. It's only under huge magnification that we can see the ciliated border. But this ciliated border has this type of action. Which way is my handset going to go if I let go of it? It's going to go there, right? See? And that's the way the dust is moved out of the respiratory tract, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, a cough, a cough is another fearful and wonderful thing. You see, to cough, which we think is so... <coughs> It seems such, a, such a, a simple thing. But in order to cough, what you have to do is you have to close the epiglottis. All right? You have to close the vocal cords. It has to be And pressure is built up in the lungs. So the pressure is building in the lungs against a closed glottis. I think that should say glottis is closed, not epiglottis is closed, to be actually true with you. The abdominal muscles contract, they get strong, they contract, and then all of a sudden it's released, <coughs> and the gust of air now that is coming forcefully expired out of there, it can reach about 75 to 100 miles an hour. So this is like a hurricane blowing through your bronchi, all right? This is, this is a category, what is it? I don't know. Category, yeah. Coming out when, it, when it, that pressure reaches up and pew, out comes the air. Do you think the integrated activity came about by chance? I mean, just think of the nerve receptors that stimulate this and the, the way it all works together. It makes me just think people are crazy if they can think it can happen by hand. Now, there can be inflex, infections. There can be tumors. There can be failure of the heart, and physical factors take place. Even water, fluid, plasma, or, or li not, lymphatic uh, fluid, yeah, will build up in the lungs. If that happens, you're going to see all kinds of changes to respiratory function. One of the things that you notice is the cough. We've talked about cough. People often cough. The next thing that you notice is that they have dyspnea. They begin to breathe with difficulty. Now, I want you to watch me. I'm going to see who of you are the most observant. Watch my face. What did you see? You saw me breathing through my nose, yeah. You were breathing through yours, but what else did you see? You're on to the right thing. Look at my alanasi. See, this is called the alanasi, these little flaps. Watch them. Oh, yeah, you are alternating. You are doing Yes. 
you can look at somebody, especially children, they can't tell you, but if you see the alanasi flaring, you see, you see the nose trying to open the airway, you know that they're having a little bit of distress. And then you count the breathing. That's what Dr. Landless told you the other day. He counts the breathing. He sits there and he watches people. And he's just counting the breathing. He, you know, he's not looking because you're beautiful. He's looking because he's counting your breathing. Just next time you see him looking at you. And, and you're beautiful too, yeah. But uh, the, he's not just looking at you because you're beautiful. See, he's looking, he's counting your breathing, all right? As he counts the respiratory rate, we know that normal people at rest are breathing maybe 12 to 14 breaths a minute, all right? Children breathing a little faster, maybe 16 to 18 breaths a minute. But when you are, have a problem in your lungs, the oxygen exchange and things like that, so you're breathing a little faster. You may be taking that, the nose, nose start. So you see somebody that's lying in bed and they're breathing with their nostrils going like this and they're breathing 30 a minute. You've got to say, hey, maybe there's a problem. So as a pastor, if you're doing a visitation on somebody that's sick and they're staying at home, you know, and they, they, they haven't called the doctor, but you see the alanasi going, and you're down the respiratory rate, you can't, you better say, hey, you know, I think we should have a doctor in here. Because you don't just put the mustard plasters on their chest, because there's a problem with the respiratory rate, there's a problem with the ease with which they are breathing, so there's potentially some problem here that needs more than a mustard plaster. This is not just the flu, they've moved one step down, and then later on, you know, the respiratory maybe. It may become real difficult stuff, but you hope they're in the hospital or under really close attention by the time they get to that level of respiratory distress. So those are the elements. We breathe in and we breathe out, which ventilates our lungs. The blood pumps through the lungs, which perfuses the lungs. There has to be an exchange across the alveola, which is the diffusion of the gases across the lungs. We have mechanisms that we may do to support ourselves, such as coughing. We may make noises, such as strider, when there's an obstruct and breathe in, or a wheeze, when we're trying to breathe out and there's a problem. We may have alanasi working. Children may have indrawing of their, of their rib, beneath their ribs if they're trying to breathe and there's difficulty. May have uh, notch, the, 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 may, the notch may go. So all of these kind of symptoms may be seen, or signs may be seen. The patient maybe coughing, wheezing, and so forth. But now you've got an understanding of the mechanical things of what are going on. And as you visit your parishioners, as you talk with them, as you see, it makes you a little more, a little more cognizant. As pastors, I would like Adventist pastors, when they go into the hospital, not to feel kind of diffident about talking to the doctors, not to feel, oh, we don't know anything that's going on, to go in and talk to the doctors as one professional to another. And, and when you talk with them, you can talk with them with an understanding and an ease. And you say, I see the patient's breathing quickly and uh, got a little problem. Is there anything we should do or can do? But you, you feel at ease because you understand the physiology and the pathophysiology of what's going on in disease. Yes. When John Wesley trained his pastors <coughs> on the circuit riders, he trained them in uh, basic... Basic things, yes. To help, yes, minister, exactly. And that's what Ellen White said. Every member should be a, she called him a medical missionary, but, but we would say a health support worker, a health, a health worker. The most important thing is to know when the simple remedies are going to work and when maybe something more than a simple remedy is called for. You see, you don't want to take somebody with depression and be holding a depression seminar. So much depression is what we call reactive. It's reactive to our poor diets, to our poor lifestyles, to our terrible family situations, to our terrible social situations, the fact that we've lost our job, to all of these kind of things. But some people have a real chemical depression, an en you know, what we call an endogenous, deep-seated chemical depression. And if you go uh, to those people and you think that you're going to hold a little seminar, beware that you don't have one of those really, really deep people because you don't want to have the relatives saying, they came to your depression seminar and they committed suicide. And let me tell you, it's easy to miss somebody with suicide. I have a cottage up on the lake. I will probably retire there. 
I sometimes worry about returning there because I think my wife will have me working like a, a navvy. Um, but we've got, we've got a beautiful place. I had a young man who lived two doors down from us. He did my garden work. He was terrific. In the summer, he would come in. He'd come across. I'd say, hey, Jimmy, come on, man. Come on in. What would you like for breakfast? Come on, let's get you some breakfast. I'll, I'll, I'll stew you some tomatoes, and we'll put them on some toast. You know, that's one of my favorites. And he would sit down, and before I talked to him for half an hour, he would cheer up, and he was ready for the day, and it was good. But when the winter came, and the days grew short, and the lake froze over, and the winds were cold. He used to plow snow to make a little bit of money. And the winters got really bad, and there was no snow, because, you know, it's climate change, the snow wasn't there. He didn't have anything to do, and he didn't have any money coming in, and he would get depressed, lack of light. And I would call him. I called him up and talked to him. And even I didn't understand how deeply depressed he was. And I said, oh, we'll be up there in the, in the spring, Jim. We'll come with you. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go in the boat. We'll, we'll do some water skiing. And we'll do some, you know, I would try to cheer him up as to what we were going to do. But he was getting depressed. He also had a, a little girlfriend problem that came. So with his seasonal affective disorder, his endogenous depression, the lack of money coming in, his girlfriend rejecting him, his mother went on a cruise, and he was going to be all alone for the next eight days by himself. He took a rifle, and he shot himself in the head. I would never want us to be running a depression seminar and talking about eating whole grains and fresh fruits and thinking that, although that is good, and saying, if you would go for a walk and, 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 and if you had connectiveness. Those are all very good things. But we must be very observant that there are some people whose depression is probably requiring medical attention. Now, I was 500 miles away. I couldn't see him. I didn't know what, what was going on. But it, it just pointed out to me the dangers that can attend us in health ministries if we don't understand the true situation. So that's why we're giving you this basic foundational stuff, to give you a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of depth, and we hope that uh, you will find it helpful to you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.